Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are joining you for a special podcast from Doha in the fringes of the Doha Forum, which is bringing together many people who are running governments, oil companies and international organisations from right across the Middle East and North Africa, but in fact from the world beyond, to talk about the future of global politics. And in this podcast today, we're joined by an all-star cast. First up is Cinzia Bianco, who's a visiting fellow at ECFR and an expert on the Gulf region. We also have Nasser Hardian, who's a professor of political science at the University of Tehran. Abdulaziz Sagar, who is the founder and chairman of the Gulf Research Centre, and also back to the podcast is Julian Barnes-Dacey, the head of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa programme. So um, we've been having lots of discussions about the future of, uh, of, of the world uh, here. And one of the topics which is right at the top of the agenda is the fact that war has returned to the European continent. And faced with the war in Ukraine, Europeans are now determined to end their dependency on Russian gas and oil at a time when prices are already sky high. And that's one of the reasons why there's so many people here in Qatar. It's become a, an increasingly popular um, uh, place. Um, and it's been very interesting to, to see how the different countries from this part of the world are positioning themselves on the Ukraine question. We saw... Uh, the United Arab Emirates abstaining on the UNSC resolution condemning Russia, despite pleas from the from the West. Saudi Arabia refused to, to break the OPEC plus agreement with, with Russia and raise oil production. Uh, but here in Qatar, they made a big show of having uh, Zelensky come down the line and uh, have not invited any Russians here. Um, what does this tell us, Abdulaziz, about the way that different people in this part of the world are looking both at the, the conflict, but also at, uh, at different powers, like the US, for example? Okay. Well, hello to everybody and pleased to be with you today here. I think there's two sides of the story here. On one hand, the Gulf country does not appreciate and does not prove any invasion of any country because we did suffer when Iraq invaded Kuwait and that happened in 1990. So we are not in support of any invasion or any uh, disruption of any country. At the same time, we understand the uh, Russia concern of national security issue. Almost, uh, I can compare a little bit between Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Russia and Ukraine to a little bit. Um, Russia issues, they want to have a friendly government, they don't want to have any strong military presence, and uh, uh, you know they don't want Ukraine to join uh, the NATO. In Saudi Arabia case, and they have a you know, big border, 2,000 kilo and then 500 maritime border also with Ukraine. For us, Yemen is 1,458 kilometers, so if we don't have a friendly government in Yemen that we can deal with and a hostile government, that will be bad. We will never appreciate any strong military presence by any external power to be in Yemen. At the same time, we would like Yemen to focus more 
in their national uh, development issues rather than building a military uh, you know, capability. Uh, so understanding where the Russian coming from and understanding that we are not in support of any invasion, if anything, we believe, and the country have, in the region here have clearly stated that they would like to see a political solution and a political way out on that one. At the same time, uh, we feel sorry for the, all the people, all the refugees that are moving from their country because we do have uh, similar cases. We have Palestine, the Palestinian, we have the Syrian, we have you know, different uh, you know, similar cases. As the uh, uh, ruler of Qatar here, the Amir, in his speech yesterday, he said, I hope the world remember other part uh, in the world where they are suffering the refugees there and so on. So it's bad for humanitarian. We do not wish to see such a situation. But on the other hand, also, we understand that the US would like to maintain the only superpower. They don't mind having a big power like Russia, China, UK, France, but they would like to maintain the superpower superiority there. Okay. It, if I just could, I'd, I'd love to ask you, Abdulaziz. I mean, you, you paint it as a comparison between a kind of a security threat. What's happening in Ukraine is comparable to Yemen. But there's a sense in Europe and in the West that it, it's not really the comparison which is driving the Gulf, Arab Gulf position here, but it's the, the frustration with the West's unwillingness to back you up in Yemen in the same way that you'd want to, to be backed up. So it's not that the cases are comparable. It's that this is an expression of the fact that the Americans aren't backing you up. Um, Arab Gulf states are angry for that. And, and the lack of willingness to support the Ukraine resolutions is a reflection of that anger and a reflection of the fact that, that, that also they're becoming, or they feel that they're becoming more dependent on the likes of the Russians or the Chinese to back up the, 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 their kind of the, these stated policies, whereas the Americans and the Europeans are increasingly asking questions about Yemen and, and some of the kind of regional ambitions in, of these states. Historically, with the U.S., we had two. We had the guarantees and the defenders. So they used to provide a regional guarantor for the, the stability and security of the region. They have existed here since 1930, and they were always a guarantor uh, because of their vital interest. At the same time, they used to be a defender. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, the U.S. put a, a, a big global coalition to make sure to get Iraq out of Kuwait. Now, these two issues, they, have, they are questionable now for us. The guarantee is not the same as it used to be, and the defending is not the same as it used to be. Because if you want to defend the region here, you have to act in two ways, either responding to the threat if it happened, or equipping your partner in the region with the necessary and the adequate defensive equipment they need. And in both today, we have a problem. When, when the uh, tankers, oil tankers, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they were attacked by the Houthi or when the U.S. drone were attacked by, uh, you, know, for, uh, uh, you know, at the time, also when the vessels, also when the Saudi critical oil facility, they were attacked. We have not seen the U.S. responding to anything like this. They decided to stand still, calm down, not responding, saying that they do not wish to escalate. So, but at the same time, that raises the question, if I cannot rely on my strong alliances to defend at the time when I need it, what am I going to do or what am I going to uh, wait for what you see this case? So that raises really the big question of how reliable am I going to look for alternative? Unfortunately, we know China and, and uh, Russia, 
they are not the alternative, you know, when it comes to the regional security solution. You know, still it's a buyer and seller relation with uh, China. Still, it's uh, Russia is a producer of raw material, oil and gas like us. So it's not going to be the, uh, you know, substitute for that. So, Chintia, you've been working a lot on these issues, looking at the kind of changing relationship. How do you see it? Look, um, I think, you know, it's good to point out that here we have different positions in the different countries. And uh, Abdelaziz has just uh, laid out uh, a position that is shared, for example, uh, beyond Saudi Arabia, also in the United Arab Emirates, um, and beyond, uh, frankly, in a number of other Gulf monarchies that don't feel as, as protected and secure um, as they used to feel. However, um, there's also, I think, trying to look a little bit into the future, a, a basic consideration to, to probably make, which is that Russia is important for the Gulf monarchies, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE, in four ways. First, um, for coordination of energy policies, uh, coordination on the regional geopolitics, possibly cooperation on, uh, for example, establishing an indigenous defense industry, and then finally on investment agreements. And these are the four things that we have seen the Gulf monarchies develop with Russia over the past few years. Arguably, on all of these four points, Russia comes out of, the, of its invasion of Ukraine much weaker. Uh, because it is now suddenly, because of the Western pressure also on oil and gas producers, it is now increasingly a competitor on on uh, um, oil and gas. And therefore, you know, the Gulf monarchies are seeing opportunities to uh, try to access the market shares of Russia, especially in Eastern Europe. It is weaker, arguably, on the geopolitical front, because as Russia is focusing on Ukraine, uh, it is less prominent in places like Libya or, or Syria, inevitably, in the longer run. Um, its defense industry and defense uh, uh, apparatus in general is performing extremely poorly in Ukraine. If you look at the different uh, incisors of the, the Russian army fighting uh, um, against basically uh, you know, much smaller Ukrainian forces. And finally, um, the last point is uh, investment agreements. And of course, you know, um, the fallout from the sanctions there is going to bite uh, all of the different investors, public and private, that from the Gulf countries had developed deals and and uh, and also um, interests in the country. So in the longer run, I think that um, all of the Gulf countries will see that it's really not in the interest to continue the strategic hedging that we're seeing right now and the ambiguity of the posture. But can I say one thing? It's... It, it's, it's um... To me, it seems less um, about the allure and what Russia can bring to the table than it does about um, making a point about what the U.S. is not bringing to the table. Um, so sure, we can talk about investments and arms and stuff, but at the end of the day, this seems to be a very pointed political statement of intent where the Arab Gulf states are saying, look, if you won't back us up on our conditions, we, we have alternatives. I, I mean, it's interesting, though. Will this boomerang back on them? They hope to draw the Americans back in. But the question is also how much are the political winds changing against them or in the, in the U.S. in particular, because uh, you know, the U.S. political opinion is getting increasingly frustrated by the sense that we've backed up the Gulf for so, so long. Now, where are they when we need them? So what do you think, Abdulaziz? Is it about trying to replace the U.S. or is it trying to suck the U.S. back in again? Well, we cannot replace the U.S., unfortunately. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's important to draw the attention of the U.S. that don't force the region to look for alternative. 
by acting like this, then all what you're doing, you're pushing the region to think of alternative, whether it's economic or military. And so we know we have a Western military doctrine. We cannot change it overnight. It takes time. It takes a lot of period. And it's, a, it's almost a century of a relation. It cannot be just, you know, forgotten overnight, you know. But at the same time, we hope that, you know, the leadership in Washington uh, do focus uh, a little bit on the, on the threat in the region and see it. Because what we are suffering from today is the fluctuation, is the uncertainty of the US policy toward the region. So one of the other big topics here in the background to the discussions about Ukraine and energy, and it's not entirely unlinked with those discussions on energy, is the whole question about Iran and whether the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, could somehow be resurrected and it's been a bit of a nail-biting discussion. We heard this morning from uh, from uh, an Iranian uh, uh, speaker who who is a, a, a former foreign minister and, and uh, an advisor to the to the supreme leader, and also to Rob Malley, who's the the um, coordinator of the the American negotiations on it. Um, having listened to the two of them. I'm still not 100% sure whether there's going to be a deal or not. But luckily, we have Nasser Hadian here who's going to tell us, is there going to be a, a nuclear deal? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm saying that we are going to have it very soon. And uh, because, not because both of them have come to the conclusion rationally that would serve our interest, but mostly because of all of necessity and lack of a better alternative, which is not bad. So both sides think that's a minimum that they can do. Thus, the plan B's of Iran, Europe, and US is so horrible that we don't have any other choice but to go back to the JCPOA. That's the least bad option. And at the moment, the biggest challenge seems to be this question about whether the IRGC, which is the Revolutionary Guard, is listed as a terrorist organization that will be solved. How is it going to be solved? <laughs> there are some proposals on the table, you know, linking this issue to the other issue too, that President Biden can sell, for instance, that inside the American uh, political system. Uh, I've seen a few of them. Uh, and I think one of them would be accepted and adopted but, shortly. But Nasser, are, are you saying that um, the delisting has to happen for the deal to happen? Or could Iran live without the delisting to get the deal done? No, it should. Because as you know, yesterday, basically, Foreign, Foreign Minister Amir Abdullahian said that there was a huge backlash since last night and today. Thus, he withdraw from, from that point. He said what? He said that it, it, can, it can be the deal. Revolutionary Guards commanders have said that, you know, we don't like it, but we don't want to be impediment toward having a deal because we are listening to them. But he withdrew that position. Uh, thus, it is almost impossible that, you know, I said almost impossible that uh, without the delisting of the Revolutionary Guard, because that's meaningless of a part of the army of a country to be listed as a terrorist organization. As you may remember, General Mattis and the Pentagon, they were op op opposing that. Even then, they disagree with it because they know that's been, that the Iran is going to do the same thing and two terrorist organizations, CENTCOM and, and the Hots Force, how they could deal with one another. That's stupid. 
So I guess uh, that's a little bit costly now for President Biden. He could have done it easier a couple of months ago. Uh, but still, there is no way that he should swallow that. I've, I have, I know the text, let's put it that way. The text, that's a great deal for America. Let's put it that way. That's a great deal for America. And he cannot afford not to take the deal. There's going to be. What would happen if he doesn't take the deal? Yeah. As I said, that would be so irrational. Of but, the America, but why not to take the deal? What you because of because that? Iran but because war, in Iran, I mean, there is going to be a major, major backlash in Iran after the deal. I'm 100 sure. The hardliners in Iran are going to be upset. Zarif team and the reformists are going to wow. be upset. Everyone are going to blame them. Why you waited so long? We could have had that deal a year ago, eight months ago, nine months ago. Why you waited that long for this thing? So that's why at the end of the day. But what what know, happens if there isn't a deal? You because you were saying that they'll regret not taking it because what, all, because they'll be more enrichment because the there'll be nuclear. What would happen if we do yeah. in detail? What would happen yeah. is uh, U.S. is going to introduce a resolution in Board of Governors of IAEA, and then they are going to send <laughs> the file to the Security Council. It's going to be vetoed by the Russians. Thus, they're going to go back to the JCPOA and use the snapback mechanism through Brits or the French. And then the, we are going to have uh, <laughs> the return of the sanctions, UN sanctions. Iran at that time would withdraw not only from the JCPOA, but rather withdrawing from the MPT altogether. And then we are going to go for something which I have called constructive ambiguity. <coughs> then the West should guess what Iran is going to do. For U.S. to credibilize its threat against Iran, they have to bring their military back in the region very strongly. Iran is going to rearrange its military posture throughout the region. In other words, both are going to prepare for a war, a war which most damage would be on Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia. So it's going to be a regional war. And that regional war has so much uncertainties, which, in fact, it is even difficult to contemplate on the consequences. So that's why the alternative is so bad that any rational-minded individual would go for the deal to delist, basically, the revolutionary guard and get something in return. I know what that thing would be, which is acceptable with the U.S., so my optimism, which I cannot share it, and that optimism is emerging from that. So, Abdulaziz, you well, were... I'd like to comment on this yeah, thing yeah. because... I imagine you would. <laughs> <laughs> and i tell you why, because, uh, list, I mean, first, the Revolution Guard, they were not listed, then they were listed, and now delisting them is giving them more legitimization than they used to have. And that's an issue. Second, what sort of agreement is going to be? Who will sign it? What sort of commitment? How the U.S. is going to deal about the arms of the Revolution Guard that have been specified, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthi in Yemen, or whether it's Hashd al-Shaab in Iraq, or any one of these militia that they used to call them the arms of the Iranian Revolution Guard. So how is that going to be dealt with? And at the same time, the delisting 
it's a counterterrorism issue. It's not. It has nothing to do with the with the with the JCPOA with the nuclear file. At the, at the same time, this raises the question: Why they've accepted to delist, or if they will accept to delist the Revolution Guard? Why they did not took in account our agenda in the region, which we did ask the U.S. and the other B5 plus one to take it in consideration. So why this is possible and this is not possible? Can I just ask Abdelaziz one quick question, Nasser? Do you think Arab Gulf states would prefer a deal that includes um, taking the designation off the IRGC or a no-deal scenario? I mean, given the, the, the kind of scenario that NASA's painted in terms of what happens if there's no deal, and, and some of the support that at least has been expressed publicly by Arab Gulf states that they would like a deal, which, which... In any case, we are concerned about the deal because in 2015, we were not consulted. And when the U.S. withdrew from the deal, what happened, it gave Iran the ability to go up to 60% enrichment in no time, to increase their centrifuge capability and so to move from IR2 uh, centrifuge equipment to IR6. So the deal, what they are going back to, does not really secure for the long term. Second, the period, they're talking 10 to 15 years, we're already now finishing seven years, so half of it is already done. But what's the alternative? What's the short-term alternative? If you, do, you don't like an ugly deal, the alternative is therefore a no deal. How is that a good scenario? No. What does that look like from a Saudi perspective in a positive way? I think the good deal is they should really stick to the key issues that will ensure the region free zone of WMD. That's what we need to have. If we don't have that security of a free zone of WMD, everybody and anybody can go back to it. But what there does that mean, the free zone uh, of WMD? Can you I know, say something? Uh, yeah. That would be a great deal for America, as I mentioned, because they withdraw from the JCPOA and did not pay any cost. There should have been a cost for what they did. And what they did was because of the domestic politics of America. President Trump withdrew with no rational legal basis. Thus, they have to pay a cost. They say, they claim the cost is, the breakout time from a year is now about eight months or six months time, which is not equal paying of the cost. We suffered more than $240 billion, plus a lot of people died, a lot of people suffered, and there is no compensation of that. It's number one. Number two is there is no guarantee. As the Republicans have said, the first day they come to office, they're going to tear down the deal. So there should be some guarantee. But there is no guarantee in this day that it is not going to happen again. Yep. Number three is snapback mechanism. Thanks God. President Trump, when he used the snapback mechanism, it was the time when he had already withdrawn from the deal. And that was stupid of his administration, even to attempt what they did. So, but now when they go back to the deal, they have that opportunity of using the, uh, using that mechanism, snapback mechanism. And number four is verification. Last time we trusted them that, okay, if we are, if we, observe our part of the deal promises, I mean, there, there is going to be uh, basically the delivery of the other sides, which is what's mostly removal of the sanctions and investment and trade. But there is nothing there in this new deal. We don't, we don't see that deal. I think it worked out for the, for the Iran interest today to sign the deal quickly because 
First, President Biden is very keen to achieve something. And second, they know Russia cannot stand for a long time to be a reliable guarantor also and a reliable supporter. Since, so that's, you know, that's what I say. It's a great deal for America. They, they get away from Iran it. Iran also. They, they, <laughs> no, it is not because they get away. <laughs> they get away. They are going to get away with it. With no cost, almost no cost. Going back to the Jays, it should have been a cost. They should have been compensation. They should have been guaranteed that it's not going to happen again. None of them are there. So that's why I would say that in Iran, hardliners plus Zarif team and reformers are going to attack the deal. That why? Why now? Why you didn't let us to have that deal? So what happened, because I think we've, we've gone around the houses a bit on, on whether it's a good or a bad deal. If we suspend disbelief for a second and assume that it's such a great deal that it's going to go through for everybody and that we can deal with this IRGC issue in a way that doesn't break the deal, what happens then also to the wider relationships in the region? Because, you know, part of what you've been talking about is the US um, being less present than it has been for most of the last few decades. I think that's one of the reasons why Saudis and Iranians, um, as you two have beautifully modelled in this discussion, have been talking to each other a lot, not necessarily agreeing on everything. How do you two see that relationship going forward? Between Saudi and Iran? Yeah, well, within a kind of wider regional context. Obviously, there are a lot of files which have not been sources of harmony okay. between... We do differentiate in Saudi Arabia the different files. We, yeah. look, at, we look at the international dimension, where is the nuclear missiles and maritime. Yeah. We look at the regional, where it is the interventionist, the expansionist, the uh, energy security uh, issue, support of terrorism, and uh, all this local you know, regional dimension. And then we look at the Saudi-Iran direct relation, which has to do with Hajj, pilgrims, trade relation, uh, organized crime, environment, issues of a Yemen? direct interest. Sorry? Yemen? Yemen is a regional issue, of course, which is, goes under the interventionist policy, not only in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, uh, the cells that has been created in Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi, you know, all of that, you know, it's under the category of yeah. the interventionist. So it's a great taxonomy, but what happens in those three different baskets now? Will well, the JCPOA help um, a further détente, or will it mean that well, more two, energy goes into competition is, in those other is, areas. There is two scenarios there. One yeah. scenario said it will encourage Iran now to go back to normalization because they will be rewarded with all the money that has been held. So they will spend it in development. They will focus on the development, you know, domestic development issue. And they would like to normalize the relation basis on the two issues, non-intervention and non-aggression. You see, and that will be good. But the other scenario will be, no, we use the fund, we use the license to expand again, like what we they did in 2015, and consider now the new back to JCBO. It's another renewable license for another expansion. Yeah. Which, sorry. So, uh, NASA can tell you which one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First one modification on verification. There are some positive, but there are some positive thing in the deal, okay? But not, it, it doesn't go to the extent that it should go on verification. But the rest is exactly what I said. But regarding your question, I, can, I think the JCPOA, uh, the return to the JCPOA is going to have a great impact on our relationship, all means Saudi Arabia and Iran. Because from the Saudis' perspective, their relationship with us is a function of our relationship with great powers. 
meaning Russia, China, US, Europe. So JCPOA would indicate to them a better relation with the West, basically. Thus, their strategic calculus would be different. They're going to sit seriously on the table with Tehran to resolve the Tehran. Tehran has been calling for a better relationship for a long time. But sorry, because, Na- you know, Na- so, but sorry Nasser, this didn't happen in 2015, so why would it happen at this time? No, it, 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 I mean, it was, it, there was a lot of attempt, it happens, and it is going to be, it is going to happen. It is going to happen, but, but that's, that's, that's a caveat. Uh, that they perceive it is going to be a long term. If they perceive it is a short term, it may not change the calculus. But if it is perceived as a long term, because it is not only the U.S., They know our relationship with China and Russia is getting better too. As I said, that it is a function of our relationship with the others. So then the calculus would be different. Once the calculus is different, they would find it in their interest to have a better relationship with Europe. But we have to remove one important issue, and that's a threat disparity of threat perception. For Saudis, we are, we are number one threat. When they rank their threat perception, Iran is the number one threat. For us, Saudis is a distant fifth. For us, the America is the number one threat and the Israel and the chaos in the region, including the terrorism. And the fourth is world order and distance fifth is the Saudi Arabia. So that's a disparity of threat perception. We don't perceive them as a threat. It doesn't mean that's a good thing, of course. Uh, but they perceive us as a number one threat. We should overcome that issue. Because whatever we do in other places... Change your act, uh, then I will change that. You know. So, no, because we are acting, this is like you acting uh, no, in terms of... No, your invasion is in Lebanon, no. in Syria, in so Yemen. So what's the relationship between Lebanon and you? What do you mean? This is part of the Arab you know, countries. It's so not, that's a part not... of Muslim world. Just let's forget about Islamic world. How can I forget? Muslim world, Arab world. you trying to change no. the if landscape it... of each one of these no, countries. No. I, think, I think we're seeing here that it's going to be a very hard struggle I think with or without a deal. We're, yeah. we're a few podcasts no. away from having achieved total de-escalation in the, <laughs> in the no. Middle East. No, because no, because if you're, you're not... I mean, we, we listen... We are, in principle, with the negotiation. We, in right. principle, we would love to have a, a, an excellent neighborhood. We would like to have a good you know, development. We okay. would love to be all-inclusive in a security architecture for the region. Abdul Aziz, either you want to be a Saudi Arabia or you want to be the Arab countries. We've, either we are going to be Iran as a nation state. Or you want to be the Muslim country. Muslim country. That's the point. <laughs> That's the point. We have to say, we have to, at least me and you, yeah. should call for being a nation-state. Okay. Once we are a nation-state, then we don't use the Arab world, Muslim or Islamic world, I think or pan-Turkish or pan-Iranian words. Let's, let's be All what we need state. is not to have an interventionist mm-hmm. policy mm-hmm. using the dimension of uh, tools of the militia and well, the sectarianism. Can, can I ask, Chintzia, yes. Chintzia, do, you, do you think there's any scope for Arab Gulf states? To continue, I mean, what is your assessment of the dialogue going with, with, with Tehran? Is it going to continue? Is it going places? What needs to be done to take it to the next level from a golf perspective? And then we're going to have to end because we're running out of time. Just as, as harmony seems to be... Finish it in a positive to... note. <laughs> I think the reality of relations between the, the Gulf side and Iran, and actually more specifically Saudi Arabia and Iran, is that it really revolves around the question of uh, regional security and in particular of Yemen. So 
there have been, of course, talks, bilateral talks between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran, and the main obstacle to moving forward has emerged as an issue of sequencing. From the Saudi point of view, um, they're insisting that uh, they want to uh, address the threat they perceive as coming from Yemen and a link uh, with uh, uh, the Iran, Iranian support uh, for the Houthis um, as a major first block of confidence-building measures. But from the, the other side, from, from the Iranian side, that is actually perceived as probably the last issue to talk about because it's such a, a high-value, strategic value from their point of view and complex as well. So there is an issue of sequencing and of course there is a massive lack of trust. Okay, well, I think we, we uh, can agree on the lack of trust as we come to an end of what's been a fascinating discussion. There's one thing left to do on this podcast which I, I haven't warned anyone about so if we can't do it then it's not the end of the world but if you can do it we tend to end the podcast with our bookshelf segment where people just tell us something which they're reading at the moment it could be a book or an article or it could even be a film or a podcast it doesn't actually have to be a book at all Nasser what's on your bookshelf at the moment uh, I prefer to say that the, uh, about talking about the movie which was very interesting, and that's about the domestic situation of Iran, uh, called Nimruz Half Day Second. There was a first of them, and this is the second. That was a very interesting about the domestic politics politics of Iran, which I proposed that the people. And who's the director? Uh, forgot the name. Okay. But he's a key figure. That's the same same director. Okay, Abdulaziz. Well, I focused more on policy <laughs> issues, so I'm, I'm more keen on the. Uh, various different policies toward the region. That's what really makes me, uh, you know, focusing a lot. In. And uh, have, have you, is there a particular thing that, that you'd like to recommend? People well, I did, I, did, I did a paper on the regional security threat for Saudi Arabia, and I defined them by seven key issues. Number one is Yemen, Iran, and, uh, maritime security, energy security, cyber security, uh, uh, external intervention in the region, and then also building military capability. Great, thanks. Chintia. I have been re-watching a, an old British TV series, which is called The Thick of It, and uh, it's very entertaining, but also thought-provoking. And I think it's a good sort of uh, uh, break from uh, everyday news, which is big brim. Julian? Well, I, when I have time to read, which doesn't seem to be much these days, I'm reading a biography of De Gaulle, um, A Certain Idea of France. Okay, we'll put links up to all the publications and films that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by going to the platform you've used to download this podcast on, giving us a positive review and a five-star rating, and you can subscribe to the podcast while you're at it. But for now, from Julian Bonds, Daisy Chintia, Bianco, Abdulaziz Sagar, and Nasser Hadim, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel. <laughs>